Yeah, do you want to do the tarot thing? Yeah, uh, I'm expecting you to bring the scholarship. Um, I am going to bring the scholarship. I just finished actually submitting an essay about tarot. So, Great, let's do it. Yeah. Do you want me to start again? Oh, yeah, sure, go ahead. <laughs> okay, wow, wow. I know, I know you're gathering yourself. That intro was dope. The intro was like, it said everything. And it, was this, it was so it. intense. It was everywhere. It, per it was like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, you know? It was like, is the cat there? Is it not there? Is it's the intro funny. there? Can you hear it? Is the Liz there? The Liz is here, and so is Zine. And you are listening to the PDC Liz podcast, a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. I am one of your lovely co-hosts, Liz. And I'm your other co-host, Zine Yao. <laughs> yes, Zine has two names. And today, we're going to look into your future, and we're going to tell you things that you should know about yourself and how to like eat next week and who to talk to and Ooh. how to spend your money well, and like you know how to like be one for your soul we're gonna tell you what mercury's doing mercury you know it always spins right like mercury is always in like retrograde or i know Jupiter. and then people i think yeah no mercury in retrograde is when people start freaking out and be like okay it's season mercury's retrograde nothing is working now or in harry potter when all the um the centaurs were like looking at the ceiling, the sky. The ceiling is the sky for centaurs because they live outside. And Harry was like, what? What's happening? And the centaurs like, oh, it looks like Saturn, the, the war is about to happen. Like, what do you mean war? And like, be careful, Harry Potter. That's what this podcast is going to do for you. Yeah. So in case people were a little bit confused, we are going to be talking about the occult, the supernatural. Yes. Yeah. The occult and reading tarot. Tarot cards. Which may be surprising, of course, because, again, like, part of her tagline is about the STEM part, and Liz is bringing the STEM. And oh, I brought Harry Potter. So. Yeah. And, but <laughs> it's sort of funny that we both really got into tarot this past year. We have. Yeah. And, like, separately, She's too. Done it academically. She, yeah. And then I've done it, like, on Craigslist. <laughs> hey. I found, I found, I found some Luddy. How, where should we begin with this? Should I give a history of tarot? Would that be a good, like, bring in the academic? I think that would be interesting. And also maybe start with the occult, you know? Now tell me about the occult. So the occult, mm -hmm. uh, of course, is this whole tradition of different supernatural spiritual traditions that, well, usually I think when we talk about the occult, we're talking about the Western occult. There's very many different traditions of it. And with tarot is, belongs to the Western occult, along with practices like astrology, um, Wicca, for instance. To mm -hmm. go back even further to the 19th century, it was also with the rise of spiritualism. There was mesmerism. There were seances and so forth. But tarot has a particularly interesting history, in part because part of the magic of tarot has been about obscuring what its actual nature is. And so you'll still find a lot of things that say, like, it goes back to ancient Egypt and things like that. And part of it's because, like, the magic has to do with the storytelling that it generates. But the more, like, the factual history is that it did go back to about 14th or 15th century Italy, and they were actually designed just as playing cards. Oh, if you don't know what tarot is. So it's a deck of cards that doesn't look like your conventional playing card deck. It's comprised of the major arcana and the minor arcana. The major arcana consists of 22 cards, representing the major archetypes of life's journey, starting with the fool and going to the world and has other figures like um, you've probably heard of death, 
the lovers. Uh, there's mm-hmm. the sun, the moon, and so forth. And then the minor arcana or resemble something closer to what we're used to with playing cards, where we have ace running through to, to 10, and then it's like page, queen, king. And the suits are also completely different. They're wands, cups, pentacles, and swords. And so they all represent different things. And of course, nowadays, we're used to thinking of them as having some sort of fortune-telling ability. But anyways, they were mm-hmm. originally designed as playing cards. It was only uh, a couple of centuries later that when they're taken up again, I think in the Parisian court, when they'd sort of fallen out of use as playing cards, they suddenly had this exotic quality about them that people started adapting for occult usages. And so since then, it sort of has become one of the mainstays of of the West, traditions of the Western occult. I think they're very instantly recognizable, like especially the major arcana are like used in popular culture very readily because they signify these sort of universal archetypes. And what I think is- Wait, been, wait, wait. Yeah? So you're telling me that they were playing cards first and then they got made into something that tells me what to do next week. Yes, yes. So that's like- I don't like this. Oh, I'm sorry. Like this is like, this is the, you know, <laughs> the, wiz- the man you're behind the curtain wizard Oz stuff. But I don't think it does, but I don't think knowing about the history like takes away from what people's relationships are to it. So what I think is really interesting is like there's been, I think, a real growth in people doing the cult and doing tarot, particularly, I think, in women of color circles and queer circles. Mm-hmm. That's sort of like mainstream culture. There's so many memes about particularly astrology now. And part of that has to do, in my my opinion, and I think, well, other people have done work on this, is that in our moment right now, which is sort of considered like a scientific, secular moment, people still have a need for the spiritual might not mm-hmm. be organized religion, but nonetheless that there's something that's mysterious. And so that's also like the literal okay. meaning of the word occult, which is something to be hidden. And so what tarot and the cult promise are this idea of like hidden meaning and also about training you in being able to learn about that hidden meaning. And I think what's particularly as powerful about tarot is not necessarily that you can use it to tell the future, although that's often what people use, but it's about knowing yourself and it's about using it as a technology of self-knowledge and it's about um, your own daily practice that forces you to attend to your life and your past and the possibilities of your future and so there's so a type of intimacy so real though like you know after i have a, like I, I do a tarot reading or something i feel like oh this is this feels relevant this feels like yeah, I have like this is my energy right now, and mm. like it like it feels like putting words to um, something that I was already feeling, and then like I think about this when I go through, and I don't know. I mean, like it feels. I don't, I'm kind of being turned upside down right now. No, no, it's well. So why? <laughs> well, I think I definitely have that experience too. Even though I read all these histories of tarot, and part of it I think is why it's it translates so well as like it provides us with a grammar to articulate often our only partially formed ambivalent desires and fears. But once we see it in the shape of this, an image, which is often like very densely symbolic, that allows us to coalesce for ourselves what those meanings are. Mm. So you recently, you, you know so much about tarot, one, because you're, you're interested in this, but also you wrote a paper about this recently, right? Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I submitted it, so fingers are crossed. Who knows mm-hmm. whether or not it will be accepted or anything like that. But particularly I was talking about tarot because I was interested in talking about 
queer of color uses of tarot or cutie pock tarot, queer trans uh, people of color tarot, because not just that like mm-hmm. it's this European tradition, but what has been really amazing is that there's been a growth of people adapting tarot for non-Western uses. And so some of the really amazing examples, for instance. What does that mean? Yeah. So for instance, there's the melanated tarot uh, by artist Courtney Alexander, and it's for okay. um, the black diaspora. And she calls it like, I think, dusk to onyx. And so all mm-hmm. the things have been, images have been redesigned for different as- aspects of the diaspora. And in another one I look at is the Asian American tarot. And what that is, is part of this mental health project that was put together by the Asian American Literary Review. And that in that case, it wasn't like a whole tarot deck. It was actually, it was about redesigning the major arcana to reflect the uh, Asian American or Asian diasporic experience. So instead of having, say, like the Hierophant, instead mm-hmm. they had like uh, the refugee, the migrant, um, the shopkeeper, like things that are like iconic for, in the diaspora. And like, how does it, like, how are, are these universals relevant to the historical contours right. of these other experiences? Because in a way, like the fool and the, the jester or whatever, that's kind of medieval, right? That's kind of like... Mm-hmm. And so there's also this way that, yeah, yeah cause, old European. Yeah, because like the often if you come across tarot, you're probably going to come up, the deck that you're looking at is the Rider Waite tarot, which was designed at the beginning of the 20th century. And like, again, it does use, you say, like these medieval images, these um, and also all of white people. And that that was like the first deck to be mass produced for a mass audience, which is why it's been had this continued rele- relevance. And it has sort of like provided like a blueprint for so many of these other like queer of color, people of color tarot decks to riff off of and to play with. Um, For example, there's a lot of uh, queer tarots that um, mix up like the way that there's such conventional gendering of like the empress or the emperor. Or people Mm -hmm. have also, there's a lot of guides online on how to queer the tarot if you have a conventional deck. Like how do you read it in ways that don't just reinscribe hierarchy um gendered hierarchy or racial hierarchy interesting yeah and so personally um what is what does this mean for you in your practice of tarot so i think the part that also really (laughs) fascinates oh god this is a big question but what really fascinates me is on the one hand it's so structured the number of cards the, the sequence of them but at the same time, there's this element of chance, which I think is what makes tarot have that magical component or like this aleatory component, which is a fancy way of saying like coincidence or luck or something that you can't control. Like there's an element of chance basically because you don't know which cards you're going to draw. So that, that's, I think, what makes the practice particularly alive. And it means that there's some things that you just can't determine. And so I think there's a really interesting tension between the way that in some ways the deck seems overdetermined with its history and its structure and the hierarchy, but at the same time, because of the element of chance and also that you have so much flexibility and in interpretation, there's a way that you can also self de- um, have self-determination. So there's, again, this sort of bind between overdetermination and self-determination, which I think particularly speaks to people who are disenfranchised, who are marginalized, because that's sort of like the tension of navigating a world when you know that so much of your life is contoured by these structures, but how do you make space for yourself at the same time? Mm, so that's part that's of it. Um, I think like that's uh, what it means for you. Well, okay. So also like the less formal answer is I got into this as well because <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. like I think I first I came going. across to tarot because like see it was featured in this '90s anime called Escaflone. Okay. <laughs> um, like every 
every episode opened like the main character like reads tarot and every episode like began with a different tarot card and then like a lot of fantasy books i read also talked about tarot so i always thought it was like pretty cool but during my phd uh in my cohort one of my friends bernadette she would do readings for us and what would happen like mm-hmm. um every december we would put on festivus so like mm-hmm. seinfeld festivus for the rest of us because we all come from different faith backgrounds or lack of faith um mm-hmm. And at the end of the night, um, she would do tarot readings for us for the year. And to me, like, it had such a strong, like, emotional, symbolic, personal component to it that it made me really fascinated. And actually, like, they genuinely helped me clarify for myself what things did I care about or what things I had to be mindful of. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I feel like I turned to tarot now not just because it's an academic interest, but I really am working out for myself what... I, I should know about myself or what my priorities should be. And I think that the cards help me in that respect. Also, they're pretty. <laughs> they are. Yeah. Well, I think yours are pretty. I think I've seen some of the older ones. My first experience of tarot was kind of similar. It was actually in high school. I told you that I went to the Mississippi School for Math and Science. It was a public residential high school. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I'm 15 and I'm living in this dorm of girls and or other teenagers rather. And there were two Wiccans on my floor. Well, actually, in the building, let's be real. And um, and one night, we were kind of, you know, a bunch of us on the third floor were sitting in the common room. And she's like, well, I can read your tarot for you. And we're like, what? Let's do this, <laughs> right? We're, we're teenagers. It's like, we have nowhere to go because it's curfew. So we're here. We're good. And it, she was just reading people's, you know, tarots. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, this is a – it's it's a very Christian place, you know, it's Mississippi as a state. And I I myself had some reservations about doing it because it was like, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. Clutch the people, pearls. Right? It's the, uh, oh, I, I can't do that. That's like the devil. I mean, in my head, I was like, I don't know. And, but everyone started doing it. And, you know, we were doing, like, cheesy things, like, uh, you know, like, reading the cards. I'm like, oh, you're, and then, like, reading your palms and, like, okay, you'll get married, you'll get divorced, you'll have kids like no you won't have kids and so I remember when I finally got to the I finally decided to actually do the tarot card reading thing and then there were like three lines and I remember um I remember this because one of my cards I actually got the death card and I was the only person um there who got the death card Mm. right (laughs) so um I remembered being really like freaked out by this and um I was like am I gonna die young like what the fuck sorry but like <laughs> what the fork you know what, what's what is this like I'm the only person I'm like 15 people who gets this and they're she's like no like it could mean someone dies in your life or it could also mean like your life is gonna change yes, like completely like your life is going to like be completely different and you're gonna have to become a new person and then like It was just interesting how the way that the cards were read and the things I remembered about it were such a thing that I kind of thought about it after that, but I didn't really think, I mean, not really, you know? And so it's interesting, right? Because when, when my ex passed away, when he died, I was like, oh, is this it? Is this it? Like, Mm. is this the part where I'm like, okay, is this the death? It's not me, but it's like, it feels like it was me. And then... You know, like I'm changing my life and I'm doing all this other stuff and I'm going to be built from the ashes or whatever. And it was just really interesting 
kind of thought because I don't think I thought about that moment like when I was 15 I didn't not really it wasn't like I was looking around every corner like okay this something's gonna happen but I do remember like sometime afterward just kind of popped in my head and and then I think for that it made it feel real and it made it feel like what is happening and like I'm not ever doing this again <laughs> you know like, or like did I know did I not know like what was happening it was so weird um so it's so interesting to kind of hear you talk about how like, you know, this is kind of like a way of giving yourself more self-determination out of like a highly determined pre-described set of cards. Um, and like you have little power over that meaning and what you do with the cards versus like that feeling like that mystical like experience I had as mm. a teenager with like, again, my Wiccan friends, you know, who just like, felt and seemed very otherworldly, just not ascribing to anything and from Mississippi. They were just like, nah, we're good. We're witches. We're cool with that. <laughs> we're going to dress goth. Our room is going to be interesting. Everything about us will be different. Uh, we'll be burning incense all the time. We don't care about your dorm rules. We will burn incense. Do something. <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting. I guess, so how do you, I guess like I feel like the big question for some people would be like, how do you navigate using tarot as a scientist? I don't find this a problem. Mm -hmm. um, no, I, I really don't. I don't I don't see why they need to be a problem. Um, when I do experiments, I don't like do a tarot card and hope my significant value, like I get a key <laughs> value of like less than 0.05, right? I do an experiment that has a positive control and then a negative control and then the actual experiment and I do the data and I make sure the experiment works and I the equipment works and then I take the data and I make sure that looks right and then I do graphs and I analyze my data and my data gives me results and then I'm like is this significant and I use the appropriate test depending on whether it's parametric or non-parametric you know data distribution and then I get a result and I didn't need to talk about tarot at any one point in that right mm -hmm. so I I kind of think of them I don't think they need to be the same I think of them like they're different. They're different. Mm -hmm. But I do find it interesting because this question kind of comes up a lot. Like, oh, can you be Christian and be a scientist? Yeah, why not? Why? Why not? What? What is that? Like, tell me how that really has a factor. I think it can become a question when people are doing like evolution work. But even then, I just think that. Um, but let's say. You can still say that God made the Big Bang, right? You can mm -hmm. say stuff mm -hmm. like that. So, yeah. Bye, good. Melanie. <laughs> Sorry, my roommate. That's okay. So, um, yeah, there's no reason why those things have to be exclusionary. That is, in sort of some ways, a particularly modern phenomenon. Because mm. like, a lot of famous scientists, like, were poets and were people of faith. And those were never contradictions. It's sort of this modern... Um, hierarchization or like siloing of different forms of knowledge in particular probably as a result of the modern university that has built these artificial barriers. And a lot of medical doctors for sure were, were religious. I mean, how many hospitals do we have that are actually based in religion? Yeah. Right. They're Catholic, they're Catholic based churches. They're Baptist church, ba sorry, Catholic hospitals, Baptist hospitals, Methodist hospitals, Jewish hospitals, um, 
I, so I, I don't really get it. There are people who were practicing and definitely had their faith involved in their medication. I'm, I'm actually thinking of um, the, the man who invented or created birth control who was Catholic. And, you know, one of the reasons why the monthly cycle, like, so they needed to keep that, the natural flow of things. And, and uh, I'm blanking on the actual history here, but for me, it's not a, it's not a deal. And I don't, I personally don't try to make people make me fit that mm-hmm. into a thing. They're not the same. And honestly, when we do, when scientists do experiments, if the protocol said hop twice and like look up at the sky and thank God, you'd probably do it. Do you have to believe <laughs> it's going to work? No, but sometimes some experiments are so finicky that you're like, if if the last postdoc who did this experiment did this and it worked every time, you will do that thing. And if that's not faith, I don't know what is. Mm-hmm. But we all have, if scientists are being real with themselves, they have all like prayed that their experiment would work. They all had some sort of hope or faith into their work, or they wanted to study something because of something powerful that happened to them or something religious. They feel like that's their purpose. Mm-hmm. So reminds me of that hashtag that was like a couple of years ago now, um, overly honest methods. And like, Oh, it's the best. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> but I feel like that's, that's one thing that you didn't see as much maybe as like bringing in, what would be like quote unquote like deemed non-scientific like or spiritual or anything like that but obviously that's mm-hmm. such a huge component of the actual practice of these things yeah or maybe this is social media aspect because i've 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 always known people who are religious and did science always mm-hmm. um i've never not been in a scientific lab or an environment where people were not religious and some of that's in a freeing way and some of that's like a you're not conforming to my religion, like, so you can't be here, right? Like, Mm -hmm. there's like a, you know, I mean, it's a part of your identity. And this idea that people don't bring their identity to the labs, that's just, that's BS. They do. Mm -hmm. Science is a human activity done by humans. I was. I used to know people who would um, not pray, but, you know, doing animal work is an example. And they would like, their mom would ask them to make sacrifices to a certain god so they didn't like get in trouble in the afterlife. No, really, because okay. like the mouse is like was huh. like a valuable animal in their in mm. their religion. So you you know like so she would like have a moment where she would do this whole thing. She tried to show anyone like I think she would do it like, quietly or something, but or just every now and then to appease her family. But it was a, a thing, right? Like so everyone yeah. brings something in here, or people make those judgments and say I won't do animal work because this goes against my beliefs. Mm-hmm. I won't do this work. I will do this work. Yeah. I think people not thinking that scientists aren't religious, maybe just don't know enough scientists. Yeah. That's a good, very good point. I, so I'm curious, do you own your own deck? Like what is, yeah, mm. what does your tarot practice look like? And also, do you have any cards you really like? I I have not had my own cards because I kind of I value the idea of having it read to me. Mm. <laughs> I know, and maybe that sounds weird, but I kind of like the idea in my head that they were, you know, special and that this person was like specially talented at doing this and that they kind of have this special deck that they've touched and they kind of have gone through. And I like the experience of like making it a session, whereas I felt 
feel as though if I had my own deck of cards, I might try to read them too often. Oh, yeah, and start that's to definitely really danger. overanalyze everything. Yeah. Whereas if I just kind of went and it was like, so, to, so in other words, take a little bit more out of the equation of like me trying to orchestrate a reality, like to create more of an experience around it. Yeah, that makes total sense. I think, well, so the cards I own, so I have the Rider Weight deck, so the, mm -hmm. the typical deck, and I also have the Asian American Tarot deck. I know I, they were so beautiful. They were so pretty. I saw the links. Yeah, I could I could also post this for it, and the episode goes you up. Should. Yeah, there's a you lot should. of really beautiful decks. Like the Melanated one I mentioned is really beautiful. I've I've a number of other friends who've like shown me a whole bunch of other like really awesome looking decks. Like it's really Melanated is becoming my favorite adjective. <laughs> oh, just like Janelle Monae, Django Jane. Oh my the line, God. highly melanated. So is she's genius. She's excellent. Mm -hmm. She's excellent. Oh my God, there was so much in there. Um, but yeah, have have there been particular <laughs> cards that, that you really like or come up to you that that you feel a particular connection to? No, so the disadvantage to not having my own deck is that I actually don't know every single card. Mm. And I don't know, um, I'm not well versed in that. And I then I focus more on what the interpretations of the cards or the meanings of them together mean versus um what that card itself is well that makes sense so it's like so that's context. kind of the disadvantage of of the way i do it like in treating it more like as an experience I, I don't focus on like the one single card all the time and therefore i don't remember when i do it again like oh yeah that card this card comes up um but what is your favorite card um, so I think I I think I may have tweeted uh, texted you about this, but like when I first started with my deck, I feel like there's definitely this way that you sort of get used to interacting with it as a material object, but like what your particular connection is. And I was trying to figure out like what card would represent me, and then I was like, I was thinking like Queen of Swords because a swords uh, represent intellect, but I wasn't really sure. And then that was the card that fell out of the deck. And then it like I was like, oh my god, and I set up message. Uh, messages to friends See? but, but oh yeah like gosh. so i think i think of the queen of swords as as my card like she's this woman sitting in a throne holding up the sword and so like, as swords are intellect it's about there's also a certain like harshness and coldness i think associated sometimes with swords it can also it could also be like difficult and combative but to me i really connect with it um, i wonder why yeah hmm hmm uh, I think it speaks to the Zula part of me for our <laughs> Avatar Lust Airbender fans in the room. Um, but yeah, I, re I really like that one. I've never, there's some cards I've never drawn. Like I've never drawn the devil, for instance. Hmm. Um, whereas I've, I feel like I've drawn, I was really lucky that in our reading I did recently for myself for March that was really stressful. Like the card that I drew for my outcome was the chariot, which is one of the major arcana, which is like this woman on this like, chariot and she looks glorious and it's it sort of symbolizes the power to overcome and over and determination and I kept on thinking about mm -hmm. the card as as really tired and really stressed out and hitting all these deadlines and I kept on like and that sort of gave me hope yeah mm. so let's go back to oh wait wait I had a thought so what I what I was gonna say and I think this might be a good transition was that while I don't think that mm, it's 
difficult to be a scientist and to have done a tarot reading before. I do admit that I, I kind of felt embarrassed or uncomfortable admitting that just because it not but not because of it being a scientist, me as a scientist, but just because tarot itself doesn't seem like it has always been like acceptable mainstream kind of thing to do. Yeah. It, it always felt like a thing like you do on the side, you don't tell people about it or like you don't know if people are going to accept it or, you know, being putting any emphasis or like any validity whatsoever into a tarot reading. You don't know how people are going to perceive you be, once you admit that kind of thing. Yes. And so what I'd be interested in since you've written about this is what have the impressions of tarot reading been like over the ages and how has it changed now? Hmm. Let's see. So as I had mentioned, it began as an activity in the courts of Paris. Mm-hmm. And it sort of has had, it always has been associated, well, so I guess it began began with being like something of the leisure class. And then, mm-hmm. it, then it did become a part of counterculture. Like, as you said, your friends were Wicca, like being very associated with like goth subculture, for instance. Mm-hmm. It also, it, because it wasn't mainstream, I think that's part of the power because it offers an alternative form of knowledge, an alternative culture, an alternative epistemology and like way of thinking about the world than like your conventional mainstream paradigm. And I think that's part of what the appeal is um, and how people use it. Again, like as I said, like I think there's been a real uptick in like feminist, queer, particularly um, of color circles using this because it's become a part of that culture. Uh, because I think people see it as a place of, like, transformation and play and, like, social interactions with one another, one another like, reading for other people, uh, reading for yourself, I think, has been really important for a lot of people as well. And, again, it was really with the 20th century with the writer weight deck that the occult, this aspect of the occult became available to the mainstream because he designed it, um, he and Pamela Col- Coleman-Smith designed this deck to be used by a mass audience. So in some ways, like perhaps losing the more occult or like the more secretive aspects because they started writing guides on how you can how you can read about these things. And the the copyright or the production for the the writer weight is actually owned by US game systems, which I think does mm-hmm. monopoly and other things. Um, so at least people have a relationship that might just be leisure. Um, I think anywhere from leisure to like the understanding of it as a type of spiritual practice or I think as a mental health practice. And that's particularly what the Asian American tarot was trying to get up that like fortune telling has a type of power to sort of validate your experience and see yourself, um, which has been really important. And like the Asian American tarot was part of this larger project for mental health, which also include this, included this revised um, DSM. And also because mental health is a big issue in Asian American mm-hmm. communities because the suicide rates are really high comparatively. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've may have mentioned before, like a lot of the, the people, the suicides at Cornell, when they became really infamous, like there are a lot of international Asian students. Mm-hmm. And so like it's trying to address that crisis and trying to like make a language around it, make it more acceptable to talk about. And tarot has been one of the things for that use. How would you suggest that people get involved with tarot? And let's even be more specific. So if we're saying, if the trend is that more people of um, people of color, more people in the QTPOC, yeah, um, Kitty Park. are 
cutie park <laughs> i've never i read it and i've never heard it it's really yeah i'd never heard it until i came here when my friends started saying it i've only seen it as acronym before yeah so yeah if more queer trans people of color are doing this um and i i would also imagine that the people who might want to try this also have a lot of stigma against kind of things that are like oh this is the occult right mm -hmm. so how would you recommend people get involved or interested or start this kind of journey on their own um so a really good start is that there's a a really great free app for for tarot <laughs> um golden thread tarot and what's nice is that it has this complete database that's really easily searchable of the meanings of all the cards so that allows mm. you to do readings for yourself and like start to learn it yourself they also have like a lot of like very simple le lessons like explaining like different aspects of how the cards work and so it really helps you to walk through whatever level of knowledge you want to have about the cards without having to have a physical deck yet. So I think like that's a really good one. And you could just start with like drawing a daily card. What's the app called again? Um, Golden Thread Tarot. Okay. We can be, maybe yeah. we can put that in the link. Too. Yeah. It's also, I think, one of the most popular uh, mainstream decks right now. Mm. But after that, um, I know that there's a lot of really great Instagram accounts for tarot reading. I don't follow them myself, though, but friends have mentioned, so they do exist, like, done by people of color. There's this one uh, when I was doing my research. Like, there's Little Red Tarot, which is a feminist tarot website, and they um, particularly try to highlight decks by people of color, and, like, they have a whole series called Queering the Tarot. Um, there's also one really great uh, tarot reader called Asali, I think, and her website's called the Sally Earthworks. But anyway, she is um, a queer black woman, and she also curates this whole uh, list called uh, the Cutie Pock Tarot Decks. So she keeps this list of all decks that have been made that reflect different uh, uh, Cutie Pock people and has this whole series where, like, she interviews people. And, and yeah, if you Google especially, like, the decks I mentioned, the Asian American Tarot and the Melanated Tarot, those ones in particular got a lot of attention because they had very successful Kickstarters. And so they mm. started getting interviewed by like, um, you know, feminist websites and so forth. And so there's some really great interviews that will help to walk people through the process of like, why did these creators find it important to create tarot for the, their communities? And I think that might also be a good starting point because that sort of can help you give an emotional connection. Because I think like, as you said, like getting to tarot is not, on the one hand, you want to, build a knowledge of the specific cards perhaps but also like understanding what it might mean for you or what it means for other people is the other aspect the effective social cultural aspect yeah yeah is that helpful that, that's really no it is yeah. i think that's going to be really helpful and really interesting as people think about this i i do remember the first time i i thought about this like the occult or thinking about um people which witchcraft or things like that and, and and while there's a part of it that sounds fanciful it sounds like it's um like another vampire like a twilight you know thing that you're trying to do i do think there's something about visualizing creating a sense of having power where you may not have power in other aspects of your life and trying to tie that together in the mental state that allows you to continue doing all the other things that you do Mm -hmm. And to let your mind wander, to to not have to know everything or really understand how everything works, but just to let things be and have power in that being, in that doing. Oh, that's really beautifully put. I think that's, as you said, like being 
I think being able to, it sounds like sort of this position of being able to be accepting or being open to things and not having to like control is perhaps really important, especially for someone like me who's like, that's a big issue for me. Like I can't do yoga because I just, I can't focus. I can't be calm. I can see you flipping off the instructor and going like, you know what? I'll bend whenever I want to. <laughs> but I, I have another question. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you, how does this paper about tarot fit into the other scholarship that you do oh, on voices? Yeah. That's a, that's a good question. Um, I know. Because like in my field is early 19th century American and it doesn't fit in that at all. Um, also, my object of study is not just the tarot, but I'm reading a particular Asian Asian Canadian graphic novel. And my my master's thesis was on comics because I used to think I wanted to work on comics, but that's a whole other story. Anyway, mm. what I do see it as relevant is for me the most relevant theoretic, theoretical apparatuses for me are what what's called queer of color critique, which really brings together, again like well work on race with considerations of feminist and queer theory and class disability and that really is trying to draw together all these different elements and some names in case people are curious are like um, Jose Munoz, there's a Roderick Ferguson who coined the term, well, queer color critique, he has this book called Aberrations in Black Towards a Queer of Color Critique. And to me, some of the most beautiful and influential work for me has been out of that area. And so for me, it was like, the number of different elements. So on one hand, it wasn't part of my main field, but I did think it like the the work of doing this helped me personally and emotionally, and also I think it helped me to to deepen my understanding and famili- familiarity with a particular theoretical tradition that I'm also invested in that I am using for uh, American studies. So you found a way to make a topic that had some personal value from you um, help you professionally as well. Yeah, I mean the secret, which is actually what you normally do. This isn't out of character for you. Yeah, like the the secret thing or not so secret thing is like everything I've written on in some ways is because of something personal. Oh yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Like, like you were a legit turtle. You, you're like nothing's personal. I'm so straightforward. I'm a robot. I'm sharp like a sword. And then <laughs> you're like, oh, that's deeply personal. That's about you. I know. That's oh, also why God. I'm I'm scared because. Yeah, well, I mean, who isn't scared? But like, for instance, with the other work I've done over the past uh, past year, and I have a, a bunch of different essays coming out all about different types of coalition between peoples of color and different mm-hmm. different aspects. And that is deeply informed with the fact that my friendships with other people of color and women of color have been the things that have sustained me, especially in recent years. And so then I sort of think about that sort of emotional social support and then look at the longer and use that to direct my understanding of a longer history of connections and conflicts Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and I interestingly enough I do think that ties back into tarot reading and Mm. and like trying to make sense of things yeah trying to like add a little mystery mystical like power to add to that to sustain you yeah. To kind of give you something future to look forward to, whether it's something you want to avoid or something you want to kind of reach for it or have hope with. Yeah. I was like just going, like, okay, it's going to happen. It's going to come. I just got to keep working towards it. Mm-hmm. 
I was going to say this is also probably indicative of what a nerd I am that like somehow it's very comforting for me or not exactly comforting, but like I process things in my personal life through research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, I do. I'm trying to think whether I do the same thing and I, I really think I do. I wanted to be a physicist when I was 11, but I didn't, I didn't take any physics classes yet, but I wanted to build a nuclear reactor because that was the first type of physics I learned. And then I learned that atoms can also give you images. And then I wanted to image things because I really liked seeing things. And then seeing is believing. And it's like seeing myself as a scientist, you know, like they were sort of merging for me, just creating images, visualizations, Mm -hmm. imagining the world in a different way, which meant envisioning myself in spaces where I was not seeing it. Well, I just should not have been based on, you know, society and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I spent a lot of time recreating things. And sometimes I think, oh, this is just, this is just science. It's, I, I don't know why this interest is, but the, the interests have usually kind of fed into each other and led into other things. And, and I'll look back and realize, oh, wow, I've been interested in this for a long time. Um, this isn't actually just new this is something that I've oh that I've wanted to do, and I've just been kind of collecting things in my toolbox and adding them together, and now and getting to do them all. But I, I've always wanted to image. I've always wanted to see things, and then kind of reinvent them in different ways. And I think science and art are really close in that way, mm-hmm. because I mean I think all first of all I think all scientists are artists. Because we go into lab every day and then, you know, do we really know what a cell looks like? I mean, we do because we've taken pictures of them now. But generally speaking, we don't know how this molecule A acts with molecule B. We hypothesize it and we talk to each other. We're not always looking at diagrams of these things. We're talking about them and we say they spin or we say they're like, no, they're squares or like, no, they're, they're circles, they're hectagons or they have a pocket and they fit in the groove and then there's all these equations and then we, we but we create, we fantasize, we dream about what it looks like and then we try to do the experiments we try to manipulate like the physical parameters around us to see if we're right or not. Mm. So like if something is this size, it should move at this speed and we should see it in this place. If it's here, then we, you know, we, we, sh- we should do this. It would do this. If it's, if it's like a, like a spring, it would have this sort of force constant. If we do this type of experiment to, to visualize that. And every day scientists are kind of, using that three-dimensional space in their head to create and to envision. And the people who can tap into that, well, we all do. I just don't, I just don't think people would think about it that way. Yeah. That that's what they're actually doing that's every really single beautiful. day they go into lab. Yeah, cause it like, is beautiful. Yeah, because if art is the way uh, about looking at the world a different way, like obviously science is also about that too. Yeah, it is, which is why they also have a responsibility. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, but, I, but they're very close. Um, and I only, I really started thinking about this ironically through counseling when I was an undergrad and, um, you know, like those, well, people have these career 
app exploration questionnaires they make people do typically when they get out of high school. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that I learned was that art and science are actually pretty close on that wheel. Um, so in other words, it wasn't surprising that I was a scientist or that I wanted to be a scientist. And that was helpful for me because I often felt like those two parts of myself were conflicting. Like, how is it that I can enjoy writing and drawing and talking to people and making speeches and writing short stories, but I also want to build a a microscope? Mm -hmm. How, How are those two, like, together? And then realizing that they have a lot of similar qualities empowered me to realize that it wasn't coincidence that they were both connected. And maybe in a different world, if my first um, inspiration had been an artist, I would my talents would have shifted in the other direction. But as it stands, I do feel like I get to do both. But I no longer feel like they're in conflict. I, I, I see why they're together. And I try to use them both to inform each other when possible. That's wonderful. Which is almost every day. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that uh, I feel like it always comes back to the fact that stuff is not just um, either or, but can be both and. Like, mm-hmm. like things are not exclusionary or necessarily contradictory. Yeah, yeah. Life is more complicated than that. Yeah, and I, I would argue that our inability to um, deal with nuance and complexity is what's causing us more trouble. Yes. So yeah. I'm thinking about a, a U.S. context where we have so many differing opinions. We have not just opinions, but lived experiences, culture, backgrounds, and of course we're going to be different and we're going to have disagreements about how to do things the best because we're so diverse in what we need. Like, I mean, mathematically it just scales that this, so this, this is something that's going to happen. But when we kind of think, well, no, we should always get along. I mean, not really. If we were all the same person, we would all of course get along because we're all the same person, but we're not all the same person. And so the question then becomes not, the question becomes how do we make sentences and solutions that are ands and not buts? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because when we talk about buts, it's kind of like you, this hurts me. And then the other person says, but this hurts me. And then we get nowhere. Whereas if we say this hurts me and then you say, and this does not or this does then you can have a better conversation about um how do we figure out how to get to a better solution i don't know i've been thinking a lot about diversity in mathematical terms Mm. and how that how what conditions around diversity lead to optimal um solutions Mm. and yeah and there's actually some really interesting scholarship around this where um, mathematicians and philosophers, economists, um, one of my favorites at the moment is Scott Page, um, who's at University of Michigan, has actually been doing this type of research for over a decade and looking at how mathematically diversity is required to solve complex problems. Oh, interesting. I should look up his work. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Oh, and I also recommend looking up YouTube. He has some recorded lectures and that would be like a really good intro. And he has several books out. Um, he just released one last year. I think it's called The Diversity Problem, which is on my list to read. 
But I think that'll be something for another podcast. Maybe he can be, I can lure him into being the second man on our podcast. <laughs> or he can recommend a great woman to do this. Oh, that'd be that'd be really exciting. Also, yeah, I mm-hmm. guess because we also haven't had a math person yet. Ooh. <gasps> okay, we can talk about this later. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there's so many, there's a list of things to do. And there's like never enough time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Should we? Should we wrap up? Oh, we wanna... should wrap this up. No, 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 no. What do we? What's a tarot thing to say here? Like, uh, what is a tarot thing to say? We uh, should close our session, our tarot experience. Well, I think. Where are the? Where are, where are the? What are in the cards for the podcast? Okay. Well, I, I'm going <laughs> to shuffle my imaginary deck, but I think maybe. One thing that might be useful to is to close the way that we opened, because I had described what the tarot deck is. And so I'd mentioned that the major arcana is 22 cards, running from the fool is zero to the world. And so let me just explain a little bit why th- that structure exists, is the idea that on life's journey, we start being completely naive and vulnerable like the fool. But by the end, after going through all these tri- trials and tribulations, like contact with like the devil, the moon, the sun, the lovers, and so forth, you then come into relationship with the world. So from the individual to the world. And so maybe that's close with the world. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. (laughs) Okay. Now, before I full cry, before I full ugly cry, I'd like to thank everyone for listening to another session of PhD Bus Podcast. Feel free. Actually, we would love to hear your comments. Do you like it? Do you have any suggestions? Do you actually want to learn more about tarot cards? Just follow us up on Twitter and Facebook at hashtag or the at handle PhDBizPodcast. Or you can follow us on our individual handles, um, Liz Wayne PhD on Twitter and Zine. I think you're Zine Yao PhD. Yeah, or like us also like Yao underscore Christine. But basically, you can find either one of us and you'll probably find both of us, basically. This is true. This is true. And we're not, so we're not very inventive with that. But we love to hear from you. Um, I'm trying to think if we have any other announcements. Soon, we will be putting up our Patreon site. So if you like what we do, if you like hearing more from us, we'd also love for you to show your support so that we can keep doing this as we both go on and become faculty and um, producing more scholarship and then looking into more futures. Any other updates, Zan? Well, I think that sounds pretty great. Um, yeah, it'd be really cool to hear if people end up getting into tarot about this. Oh, yeah, that'd be so cool. Uh, <laughs> all right, Mercury is not in mid retrograde anymore, so we fixed everything. I think I said this correctly. And we will catch you next time. Bye.